Welcome back to another episode of Precious Snowflakes. Today is Wednesday, September 20th, and it has been over a month since our last episode. It has ben. been a long time. A time of change. And this is episode 17 now. Episode 17. Turn, turn, turn. Yes, yes. Yep. Lots well, of things have turned. We are back, and I am your host, Lelius Rose. And I'm your other host, Ben Phelps. And without a mic, I'm Chris Villarreal. You don't have a mic, really? What's uh, up with that? I don't know. I, I couldn't find And you're way over there. Okay, so. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to do most of the talking. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm engineering today. You can be the, the muted woman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is, oh. Did I just make a sexist joke? No. Well, there's, there's also, there's just such heavy symbolism to the you two of us it. having mics and you, you not having one. You could have done it better. Number one, it's my choice. And number two, <laughs> you just totally missed a Holly Hunter reference right there. Yeah, yeah. These are your mics. All of these are your mics, technically. Yeah, you so provided them to us. <laughs> they're my mics, and I can shut them off anytime I want. Okay. Oh. Uh, yes, you're holding the box that controls them. So <laughs> Today, today we're going to be discussing uh, To Punch a Nazi, the repercussions now of all of the fallouts in Charlottesville and the free speech conversation that not enough people are having. Uh, and following that up, the libertarian to alt-right pipeline. Or where do libertarians actually fit in to the ever-changing and increasingly authoritarian political landscape? Uh, so let's start off with Nazi punching. Nazi punching. So, I mean, Nazis generally not good people. I'm not a fan of them. That's <laughs> they're kind of they're kind of horrible. I mean, it, however, it is. I mean, it's it's hard to you know find a genuine bona fide like true Hitler worshiping Nazi, especially walking the streets of Seattle wearing a swastika armband. And yet, that was exactly what happened yes. <laughs> the other day in downtown Seattle. The other day in downtown Seattle, a man was seen, and I more or less got to follow this in real time. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but I was seeing like people were snapping, you know, discreet pictures of him and sharing them to like, uh, <laughs> Jews. Let's not get beaten up. Facebook groups. Uh-huh. Um, they were like, this guy is in Seattle on a bus. This guy's in Seattle walking down the street. Like stay away. Do not engage. And then, Right, and then somebody engaged. Well, apparently he was he was mouthing off to people. Yeah, someone described it as being an Alex Jones style uh, street rant. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was obviously looking for trouble. Yeah, I mean, you don't rock the not the swastika armband usually unless you're looking for attention and in a bad way. Right, it's a little bit like that scene from early in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, no. No, right? no we're, we're not going to. If you've ever seen that movie, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know you know what we're, we're talking about. We're not going to. Yeah. But, like, isn't that sort of the same thing, like, walking down the streets of Seattle wearing a Nazi armband? That feels relatively similar in its, uh, in its like, riling uppiness. Mm-hmm. 
And Does anyone know who this guy actually was? Like his, they know, like the news reports I've seen don't like mention his name or or any background information. Just some kook who decided to put on a right. swastika. I don't know, but part of my assumption and yell after, at people in front of McDonald's. Part of my assumption after watching him get punched in the face is like maybe mentally ill. Well, and the video. I mean, someone eventually hauled off and you know punched him <laughs> and knocked yeah, him out. Just knocked him the. Fuck out! Right, right. Re- sort of reminiscent of Richard Spencer's, you know, getting a, oh, yeah, getting a, getting right. clocked in in DC. Well, and it became the the video, you know, went viral, and there's definitely a, a a very strong sentiment that hey, you know, if you run around, you know, being a Nazi, it's fair game to haul off and and deck you, <laughs> and it's he got what was coming to him, and that, you know, just the simple, the sheer act of being whatever it is to be and i don't even know how you verify that someone's actually a real nazi i mean because nazi is not even i guess there are neo-nazis who self-identify as neo-nazis like you know the like american history x those kind of people they I exist was... but there's such a a small minority they and they usually don't you know go around in public <laughs> anyone yeah. complaining about the new wolfenstein game yeah so the question i mean the is you know is it morally ethically right is it justifiable to punch a nazi who has not initiated physical violence right and part of the question here seems to be you know is it okay to fight back when someone else initiates violence with you generally yes uh does it count as initiating violence when a guy is wearing a nazi armband and shouting your face Mm mm-hmm and that's that's the question and my this is one that a lot of people are really struggling with my gut says no <laughs> my gut says that violence is only initiated if it's if it's real like the yeah, I mean Ruth, you can always leave right i mean <laughs> right well like ruth bader ginsburg once said that your right to swing your arm ends when your fist makes contact with my nose. Right. So that's, that's the line that she, at least at the time drew was like, it becomes an initiation of violence an initiation of force. When the fist makes contact with the nose up until that point, they have not actually initiated well, violence. Well, sort of, I think in, in most cases, usually the way assault is defined under the law, you don't actually have to make, when you actually make contact, then it's battery. But if you cause someone, a reasonable person, if, a reasonable person to fear serious bodily harm, then it's considered assault. For example, if I were to, you know, to, to point a gun at you, that would be considered assault or to, or to, or to, or to, or to shake my fist, like right in front of your face, that could still be considered an assault, even if I'm not touching you. So any sort of threatening action that a reasonable quote unquote, reasonable person would assume to be, you know, something that would result in, bodily harm but you know i digress it's funny you should say that i was looking up uh apropos of a previous conversation i was looking up what washington state's laws are regarding swords uh (laughs) because i'm buying a sword Mm -hmm. and uh part of what it says is like you're you're not allowed to conceal carry a sword because Mm -hmm. you're not allowed to conceal carry things in the state uh you can open carry a sword as long as you're not carrying it in quote a manner 
that appears to threaten uh, or that that could potentially cause harm or damage to other people. And if you have it on you in a threatening situation, that counts as threatening someone with a deadly weapon. So it doesn't even need to be out. You don't need to point your sword at someone right. for it to be considered like threatening violence for it to be illegal. Uh, <laughs> just Just having it on you and causing them fear is enough like if you if you get up in someone's face and your sword is sheathed but it's on you (laughs) that counts as threatening someone with a deadly weapon interesting apparently yeah it can get it's, it's a little bit nuanced but the idea is i think most people understand that the difference between simply having a weapon that's visible and displaying it or brandishing it in a threatening manner. Like if you just see a person like to me, if I, if I just see a person with a gun and a holster on their hip, I don't freak out. Well, But this is the question. This is the question now is really, that for me, it depends who is carrying that gun. Well, what does that mean? I mean, how do you determine like who, like just an average person, not a police officer. Well, yeah. Yeah. Not a cop. Yeah, but I mean, it's totally legal for people to just have their gun in their whole... Like, just an average, sort of normal-looking person dressed in street clothes. Right, and once I have my sword and sword belt and scabbard, it would be legal, potentially, for me to, like, go walk down the street with it. Unless someone fears... I mean, at our libertarian function, sometimes I'll see people, you know packing a gun they just have it in a holster on their hip it's it's half of the people yeah but i mean when i just see a gun i'm like okay that person has a gun i'm not thinking okay they're gonna you know well no actually (laughs) my my feeling about it is always like man this is the safest political convention no one's gonna start no one's gonna start shit at a libertarian event because they will go down so fast but I mean, somebody who's going to carry a gun, I, I don't know, I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt that they're, if they're going to have their gun out there in the open when you, where you can see it, they're not, they're, they don't have it there so they can use it against people who are not a threat to them. So the question is, does that apply to swastikas, which aren't mm-hmm. a weapon, but which are <laughs> well, being treated as a weapon? Well, people are talking about, well, it's basically advocating genocide, you know, just... The swastika is a symbol of the Nazi regime that basically condones mass murder. And by displaying a swastika, you're basically telling everyone, hey, I'm in favor of mass murder. Yeah, it's sort of like a multiplier. It's just like, gun on your hip, I don't know, you can take that as it is. Gun on your hip, swastika on your arm, that's like... But is it, should it be a, should it be considered a criminal act or, 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 or at least a ju- like a justification for assaulting someone simply for having horrible, vile, genocidal, you know, I, I views that, but if they're, that they're not actually acting upon. It's, it's worth mentioning as a side note that this evening is Erev Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> Shana Tova, everyone. Uh, and as, as happens every year, once again, the discussion comes up about police and armed security at synagogues. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you go that's having a Rosh Hashanah service in America is going to have some kind of armed security. Uh, in a lot of places, it will be uh, the police who will be out in force. In some places, it'll be the police wanding people as they go in. In others, it'll be private security armed. Um, 
and this is in Germany they uh, they deploy tank divisions to guard the synagogues um, because there's a history of violence because there's a history of violence and threats of violence specifically in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur uh, the two not technically really the most holy days of the year because technically the most holy holiday is Shabbat <laughs> Uh, but certainly the two most notable and the two most attended. Right. Um, and the, the fact that like, here's at least a lot of people in, in sort of my little world space talking about, you know, the, the presence of armed police and armed guards at services. Uh, and in the same week that a guy is like being a Nazi. Yeah. Nazi and down the street. Here's the thing, Ben. It's when I see somebody with a gun. It is now. (laughs) When I see someone with a gun, I generally I think it's pretty easy to tell by a person's demeanor. Well, this guy didn't have a gun. But base. No, I'm just. You were talking about armed guards and you know the idea of feeling threatened and all that. See, when I when you I think most people just when they see a gun, you can kind of tell if someone if they're up to no good. Or if they're, you know, <laughs> if they're, if they're, if, if something, you know, is about to go down, you know, and a lot of people just, they'll, I mean, I, I guess some people, if they see a gun, they immediately get uncomfortable, but just seeing a gun on someone's hip, if they're acting non-crazy and just normal, like they're going about their business, it doesn't especially bother me personally. Well, I, I'm... Now, a lot of people feel the same way, unless it's like maybe a black person, in which case, ah, 911, but I, I bring up the services thing because it's just this like weird, sad reminder mm-hmm. that Jews never feel safe. Right. That I there's can see why. That, it's in that sense it's making you feel more comfortable. But it's it's right. this reminder that yeah, you that not every, you know, most like churches probably don't need armed security. Nope. Uh right. It's a reminder that like things do happen. Well, it's a reminder you know, of something that attack. did happen. Right. That Right, and that synagogues, well, synagogues do get regularly attacked well, in this the, country. Well, the one in Seattle was attacked, you know. I mean, it's been a few years, but it's not that. It was the Federation still in office in 2006, I remember. It's still very much in people's memories, so I, I, oh, yeah. I don't... But back to what we were talking about. Punching Nazis. Okay, right. not okay. Why do people feel that it's justified to attack someone just for displaying a symbol? Right, so part of my point in bringing all that up is that the way people are made uncomfortable by someone open carrying, uh, which is, you know, silly. Mm. People are made equally, if not more uncomfortable, uh, by a swastika. And it's not a weapon, and yet <laughs> it produces more fear yeah. than a Glock. Um, is it fear or, or, you know, anger? Or what is it? I mean, <laughs> yes, when you see someone both. with a Nazi, are you like, okay, this person is, is going to hurt me? Well, I... Well, yeah, I mean... Yeah. It's, it, the swastika is... You know, you, taking this, I'm going to hurt you. Well, you think... My first thought would be, okay, this person is unpredictable, unstable. Well, they're willing to do this. What else are they willing to do? But would I proactively go and attack them? Preemptively? Oh, I would avoid the shit out yeah, of Yeah, I would go somewhere else. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't want to engage with them. Because it's... I mean, it's it's pretty much. I mean, I don't know what you can, any sort of symbol that you can display that's gonna well, evoke a stronger reaction. Maybe the N word if if you're a, a white person. Well, generally, if you're gonna punch a Nazi and you're not in danger of being punched yourself, it's not because 
it's you know it, it's 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 really for your own edification it's it's just it's not to you know to defend yourself right. so i don't i don't know how much information there really is about the people involved in this particular nazi punching but i did notice that it looked like it was sort of an all-white crowd mm-hmm. around this guy, and it was a white guy who did yeah. the punching, and I don't mm-hmm. know if any of them were Jews, but <laughs> I think it's notable that, like, the sorts of people who would be targeted by a Nazi were not the ones <laughs> who were present. They were not the ones who were yeah. engaging with him. Well, it was exactly the people oh, yeah. who, would, who would normally be safe I, well, who were engaging with him. I would bet that, I mean, you know, these are people who, like, want to punch somebody just anybody well sure and and it's 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 something that uh certain people like to refer to as quote-unquote virtue signaling (laughs) it's and it's interesting you know the phenomenon especially here in seattle and other liberal west coast cities is some of the most vocal people you know calling out you know white supremacy and racism all and all that are fairly well-to-do white people who seem to be the most you know (laughs) The ones that are probably not, you know, having to deal with discrimination, yet they seem to be the most, among the most riled up about it. You know, the, just the, just the, well, just they're offended by the idea that makes them angry that someone would be openly racist. It's such a social taboo to be openly racist. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, it's the worst thing you can be in their, in their mind is to, is to not just hold bigoted ideas, but to, you know, express them. In yeah, the open. exactly. Like, yes, I'm a racist. You know, that's, that's not okay. And to the point where they, it's considered okay to meet that with violence. That's what Antifa is all about. Right. That's the whole idea is, you know, by any means necessary, we're going to shut it down. You know, it, it doesn't have a right to exist. It has no value, but you know, that's, I mean, this is a country where we have the Westboro Baptist church. Which is allowed to exist. A thing can have no value and still have a right to exist. Well, it it kind of, I think you know, I I I think you can make a good case that the fact that we let vile ideas and symbols and things like that exist in public is actually makes us freer. It reminds us of how free we are. How 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 basically unlimited our freedom of speech is. That something that's that disgusting and horrible is basically is protected by law it well we allow it and we protect it because if we don't then it's the nazi thing to do right and you're like them now well yeah we're as far we're as far away from them as we can possibly be the fact that you know we don't have some government bureaucrat who's deciding where the line between acceptable and not acceptable is i mean yeah people are going to react you know to it and you know maybe they'll get violent i guess it's you know, it's it's not like I'm sitting here worried about this guy. It's like okay, he got punched. It's like big deal. Is it okay? To, should the puncher have been arrested? Yeah, probably. The cop seemed like they were, I, apparently the guy wasn't really, you know, cooperative with them. You know, he he got punched, but he wasn't. You know, <laughs> he wasn't all that upset about it, from what I gather from reading the. The police report. Maybe he just wanted he, a nap. He decided to take the armband off, and the cops were like, "Okay, so you're good, man. All right." They they weren't, you know, but there is a video of it. I mean, you they I guess they could have investigated it and tracked it down. But yeah, from a from a purely 
rule of law perspective, you'd think there would have been an assault charge or a battery charge, I suppose, after that. Well, if the cops had witnessed it, I think, I don't know if the assaulter was present or if he was contacted by the police. But the the overwhelming, you know, sentiment seems to be, well, he got what he deserved. And whether he deserved it in a moral or ethical way, in in a legal sense, it's like, no, you can't just go around punching people because their ideas upset you. And people are saying, it's not, it's not an idea, it's Nazism, you know? One of the comments I saw that got some of the most likes on, on Facebook was, you know, it's like, it's not someone, it's a Nazi. Yeah, I don't know. As... Well, exactly. It's dehumanizing. Like, exactly. Yeah, it's not a human. It's a Nazi. It's not a human. It's a whatever, whatever you want to put in that. But then it's like, what makes someone a Nazi? You know, most most well, you know people who hold those kind of terrible views don't go around advertising them on the street, like this guy. I mean, this is an well, ob- this is a perfect you know opportunity to virtue well, signal, well, they basically. They would if they could get away with it. They could like, uh, but right now and that's not the. Well, sure. Nazi, if real Nazis show up. By the way, can we hear? Can are you being picked up okay by the mic? Can people actually hear you? Or I'm echoey. It's just interesting to me that the that the episode where you've you've decided to do the most talking is the one time you don't have a mic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's just no. I'm fine with you with you contributing. I'm I'm glad. I'm just curious if it's going to be like if our listeners are going to be able to hear you. Yeah, they will. Okay, good. <laughs> just wondering. It's just. Yeah, Ben, you may. Yeah, you can sort of move the mic so it and, picks up both of you. Yeah, and now Ben is like contorting his way around the mic so it'll face me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, just for the listener enjoyment, you know. Okay. What I'm yeah, thinking okay, about. Yeah, yeah. Do so some like, audio. Like, who is that later. person in the tunnel? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, the. Um, I wasn't expecting this. That's all right. Yeah, I know you've got a lot on your mind. It's cool. Um, I mean, personally, I mean, for me, I, I if I saw. If I was there, I would probably have just, I, I might have sort of like wanted to watch and see what happens, but I certainly wouldn't talk to the guy, let alone haul off and hit him. I'd probably back off, maybe call the cops and say, hey, something's about to go down. There's a guy wearing a swastika, and I think people might be about to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I would have crossed the, I would have crossed the proverbial street and left. Yeah. Oh, I would have like I would have crossed the proverbial street and kept my eye on. Yeah, I would have pulled out my camera. And <laughs> yeah, my phone's ready. My phone's ready. If shit goes down, yeah. it's like I you know I call somebody who can actually like do something about it because I can't. Is there an argument to be made though why it's okay to just go ahead and punch them? Is there? Well, I think the argument <clears throat> the argument to be made, which I was trying to get out before, is that to the people who do the punching the wearing of the swastika armband is itself the equivalent of brandishing a weapon. Right. They see it as assault. Yeah, that for it, sure. It's, it's a signal of intent. And I know for my part that as a Jewish person, if I see a Nazi per, if I see a person wearing a swastika, my immediate thought is if that person knows I'm Jewish, they're going to beat me up or kill me. Hmm. I'm going to, I'm not going to give them a chance. I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, well, one of the reasonings I've seen people point out a lot is also, well, if they know they're going to get punched, they're they're less likely to, you know, 
go out and do that and I don't think so. I think it, if they know a, they're going to get punched, they're more likely to go in groups. I mean, my per, and what I what I said, and some people agreed with me. I'd say the, about eighty percent of people on Facebook disagreed with me. Is that getting punched is basically exactly what they want? You know, yeah, somebody who's yeah. going to strap on the swastika armband and go to downtown Seattle is looking for attention, and he's they're they're looking to basically be persecuted because yeah, I, they, they want that victim card. Well, yeah, that's exactly what it. All these white nationalists, white supremacists, well, the people want, who talk about white genocide—they're well, they, they talk want about the intolerant left, right? And they're you know they're looking at you know other you know groups that have been oppressed, and they're like, we want in on some of that victim action too, right? Because we are now living in the victimocracy, exactly. Where and the more you can be and, a victim, and a bunch of rednecks feel out. left out, <laughs> and so they want to get some of that. I mean, it's not. I mean. People on the on the alt right, they're not. They don't want to end welfare. They just want to end it for 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 for, for people for they people don't for people who aren't white. <laughs> they're basically socialists, but they want you know it to be their ethnic white utopia. Uh. <laughs> that's and that's why I, I kind of call bullshit on the whole like you know alt right libertarian thing. Is the alt right? is about as unlibertarian as it gets. Uh, well, and I guess here's our transition. I mean, both of them occupy kind of the, the fringes of, of, of mainstream politics. And maybe that has something to do with it, that it's kind of being a libertarian. It's kind of this, a little bit, you know, kind of exotic (laughs) place in the political spectrum right now. So to, to rewind a sec, our second topic of the day is, as I said before, the, libertarian to alt-right pipeline which is the name of an article one of many articles that have been published this week in an ongoing conversation about the relationship between sort of the libertarian the broader libertarian liberty movement and the alt-right white nationalist movement and highlighting specific people like augustus invictus and chris cantwell who at some point the crying Nazi, yes. who, who, at, who at various points have identified themselves as libertarians and who are now clearly ensconced in the white nationalist alt-right. And like, how, how does this happen? Why does this happen? What's its history? And what is the philosophical undercurrent? And I know Lel sent me an article. There was It was a, in the Daily Beast. I bet it makes sense in the mind of the person who's thinking it. Yeah, well, it, it was an article in in the Daily Beast. It's called the I believe it's called the the Insidious Libertarian to Alt Right Pipeline by Matt Lewis and the the Daily Beast. If you want to go read it, well, the one I was thinking of that that struck me is the one that you sent me about Rothbard, Hop, and Paul. Oh yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, there was a piece that was just like a yesterday. That was in the Washington Post. Yeah, Washington Post piece that I thought was really interesting in that. The first half of it mm-hmm. was like totally spot on, and then it just veers off into crazy town. Mm-hmm. And by the first <laughs> half of it, I mean it, it does this sort of uh, historical, you know, documenting of a, of a number of influential libertarian figures, specifically well, Ron uh, Paul. <laughs> well, specifically uh, Murray Rothbard mm-hmm. and Hans Hermann Hop. Yep, which is a ridiculous name. And how the three of them, or the two of them, 
in the or like Rothbard was a scion of the liberty movement. He was one of like the key, mm-hmm. you know, pillars. And then in the early 80s, he left a number of libertarian organizations. He left the Cato Institute. He left the Libertarian Party. Uh, you know, groups like Reason Magazine. He sure. departed from because he began to advocate for a white nationalist ethnostate. And Hans Hermann Hopp, who is someone who also described himself as a libertarian, was a was an acolyte of that era of Rothbard's career. At the same time that Rothbard and Hopp were writing, were basically trying to make a libertarian argument for white nationalism in the early 80s, that's when Ron Paul's career got started. Mm-hmm. And his early career, between his 1980 presidential run on the Libertarian Party and his 1988, you know, his first uh, presidential run as a Republican, he did a lot of reaching out to and courting the people who are now the alt-right, the the sort of burgeoning white nationalist population. Uh, And they go on, the piece goes on to argue that this happened because... You know, the central philosophical core of libertarianism is self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. But that's the part that I think is bullshit. Uh, I think that that's part of the core of uh, objectivism, perhaps, which right. is the name of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Uh, although we discussed earlier, she wrote a piece during the height of the Jim Crow era. She wrote a big essay on why racism is uh, irrational and stupid and antithetical to individual liberty. Um, but even even so, I would say that the the core philosophy of libertarianism, the real thing at the heart, is social optimism. Yeah. That people don't need to be forced to do the right thing. They'll choose that, to do it on their own. That freedom basically makes everything better. Right. The freedom right. makes everything better because people will choose to right. help each other. And it's really, it's interesting how you bring up, you know, the, the, some of the founders of the, the libertarian, you know, political movement and how they end up getting kicked out for being too radical, basically, or left on their own. And that's, that's not unusual. I mean, one thing that springs to mind is W.E.B. Du Bois and that one of the founders of the NAACP ended up leaving that organization because he was too radical for it. He actually went to Nazi Germany (laughs) and thought that they were on the right. He was, you know, interested in black separatism that they should have, that black people should go to Africa or wherever and have their own country or own state. And he thought that the, that that Hitler kind of had a good idea. Let's all just be with our own kind Hmm. and, and wrote articles, you know, (laughs) suggesting such. So it's, it's in, I mean, there's a lot of people who do good things and found, you know, have a lot of good ideas, but, there is such a thing as being too radical on any cause. Yeah, well... and, and the, But no one's trying to tear down statues of him, oddly enough. Well, but. so there's a, there's a two-part piece here, which is that clearly there was a movement in the early 80s by libertarian movement leaders to reach out to and court and bring in white nationalist types. Mm-hmm. This did happen in the, ni- in the early 1980s, Yep. And the other thing about the other piece of it, and that the, the three people most involved in that were Murray Rothbard, Hans Hermann Hopp, and Ron Paul. Um, 
and that now we have this crisis question mark where there are a number of key figures in the alt-right movement who at some point in their lives some of them very recently have identified as libertarian it should be made clear that the libertarian party has thoroughly and repeatedly denounced these people uh, and what they stand for mm -hmm. that the the libertarian party has taken a very hard stand that these people are not libertarians under any definition that they do not belong in the libertarian party they do not represent the libertarian party and that the libertarian party uh, if offered their votes and their money will say no you know I, i'll say it once i've said it many times before and i'll say it again that statism and authoritarianism is basically like it's, it's a drug the idea it's it's a form of power the idea of using state power to enforce you know your will on other people is 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 like a drug and everybody is is subject to it now, all the depending on where you are on the political spectrum the the urge to to use your power <laughs> on other people may take different forms you know maybe you want to you know, you know, if you're on the right, you want to, you know, force everyone to, you know, live according to whatever, you know, code of morality. Yeah. Whereas on the left, it's more about, okay, well, we want to make sure everyone, you know, has enough money and food and shelter and we want to take care of everyone. Well, it's functionally, <laughs> it's functionally the same in both cases. It's groups of people saying, I have strict moral principles and strict moral stances and i believe that the government should enforce those exactly. people mm -hmm. whether it's you know i believe that you know people should have uh free free health care or i believe that people should not be allowed to have abortions yeah. like it comes from a similar place of i'm not trying to say that those are equivalent feelings they're mm -hmm. not i understand well, that and but they come from the same place of I believe this in my heart. Right. And I think that the government should enforce that onto other people. Well, and my personal, you know, my, my political origins are, mo are more, certainly more to the left than to the right. And so I do find myself thinking, well, gee, you know, everyone does need health care. And it, and it does seem to me morally wrong that someone should be sick or injured or whatever and not be able to get access to health care simply because they haven't got the money. I, that, that bothers me, the whole idea. And it's hard for me to reconcile that with my libertarian ideas because, well, what do you do? I mean, if you go to a hospital, you know, bleeding from a gunshot wound or if you get hit by a bus, you're going to get treated. And if you don't have the money, you're still going to get treated. You may not get the same follow-up and aftercare right. and whatever. You're, and you're going to get a potentially life-ruining bill. Yeah, but let's problem, say you right? come down with cancer or something. You know, it's like the difference between a rich person with cancer and a some homeless guy with cancer. You know, I, I think the, 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 the homeless guy is probably going to well, have a shorter life expectancy. So it's hard for me to think, okay, you've got to, obviously we're going to spend, somebody's got to spend the money. How do we, you know, how do we pay right. for it without forcing I, people to pay? I would argue pay? that, like, we have clearly reached a tip on healthcare. We have but, clearly reached a tipping point. But, I mean, you, there are a lot of libertarians who are like, well, that's your problem. Sucks to be you. Well, <laughs> you right. know, don't so be there, poor. <laughs> there are lots. There are a lot of libertarians who say that's what charity is for. You Medical know. charities are there to make sure that the poor and the homeless get taken care of. Mm -hmm. And 
rather than if only that covered everybody. Yeah, if only there were enough of it. <laughs> part of their argument is if the government spent less time taking people's money effectively at gunpoint via taxes then people would have more financial flexibility and they would donate more. Mm-hmm. And that, that by the way... You can go in circles thinking about this all day. You really can. <laughs> well, but that, like... that, by the way, is where I think mainstream libertarianism really differs with objectivism mm-hmm. and, with, and with sort of the way libertarianism is often ca- uh, characterized, is that uh, people say about libertarians... Like, oh, you just want everyone to die in the street. No. But no, really, the mainstream libertarian belief vis-a-vis healthcare is if we give people greater flexibility to do with their money what they want, they will choose to give it to charitable organizations that help poor people cover medical expenses. And there will be more money going to that and less money going to <laughs> war because that's what people want to spend their money on. And I, I, I is the microphone picking up Chris's skepticism in the background? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, so. Chris is quite skeptical, uh, and I think that's fair. It's, it's, I'm not like I'm not dismissing it offhand. It's just like we're not getting to the part where we're actually going to get to see this in action. So, my personal feeling is that we've reached. We've we've clearly reached a tipping point in this country where a majority of Americans believe that there should be universal health care of some form mm-hmm. and a growing movement who believe both interestingly on the far left and on the far right who believe that that should take the form of Medicare for all. My personal feeling is... Well, okay, there's there's clearly enough people who want universal health care that we should implement some kind of universal health care plan. That's what the Affordable Care Act was sort of supposed to be, uh, but it didn't quite work. So what are the public-private models? What are the most cost-effective models right. that provide the most freedom and use the least amount of tax money that can achieve universal coverage there are a couple of those, if you're curious, listeners. The two <laughs> that are brought up repeatedly <laughs> are the health and the healthcare model in Singapore and the healthcare model in Switzerland mm-hmm. are both cases of market-driven healthcare where universal coverage is achieved. Uh, and what I would personally be interested in seeing is seeing if we could hybridize those two models. Because what I found doing research is that the Swiss model, which is supposed to be the basis of ACA, and the Singaporean model are actually not mutually exclusive with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I don't it's recall just, all the details of exactly. Yeah, that's two a lot models. of the way. I mean, to me, it's a lot of wonk. The that's imp- for our second podcast. The I mean, cast. considering that taxes are not going away anytime soon, and we've already got Medicare and Medicaid and these big single payer systems that are available for people who qualify for them. My thinking is that the most practical thing to do would be to simply, you know, broaden the eligibility, but for people who don't meet the, you know, the income or the age qualifications and let them buy into it for, for whatever, for some sort of, you know, basically a means tested thing where you can, and basically anybody can get Medicare, 
but they have to pay a premium for it and you can sign up for it anytime you want. That's that. And, and I mean, to my you know simplistic thinking, that would be the most, the easiest way to achieve it as opposed to abolish all, you know, private healthcare completely and require every, and make the United States government the only source of, of health insurance. I, I do genuinely worry about, uh, about care rationing, I worry about what that would do to the market. Well, yeah, the Canadians could more, definitely tell you something about that. Well, we're rationing care now. It's just based on. Well, it's just insurance companies doing it. Yeah, right. Insurance but companies are, yeah, insurance companies are doing it, and your wallet is doing it. Well, here's the the big problem with, with 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 lowering the cost so that people can afford it is one of the biggest contributors to costs, or where a lot of this money is going, is into the the to the pocketbooks of the care providers. You know, a lot of these very highly paid, you know, healthcare providers, doctors, you know, whoever well, are making a lot of this money. And if you're going to, you know, re- if the U.S. government became the only payer, they were they would want to try to they would basically be able to s- fix the prices. And the doctor, you know, healthcare providers would basically have no say so in how much yeah, they charge. You know, that we, would be a, kind of a, a, a war. Going there are on. there are other there are other problems with that. Like we're facing a GP shortage, a general mm-hmm. practitioner shortage. Uh, people don't want to be GPs because it doesn't pay well. Right. Uh, you know, say what you will about like specialists definitely get ludicrous amounts of money, which is why so many doctors want to become specialists. General practitioners don't get as much money as we think they do. They don't anymore. Mm-hmm. And when they work like <laughs> really, really right. hard. Too. And you know, there's a lot of talk about, opening up more and more medical treatment to uh, to nurse practitioners, mm-hmm. to physician's assistants, uh, as a means of cutting cost by increasing the labor force. Right. And that's, uh, that's interesting. I, I fundamentally believe that the free market solves most of those problems mm-hmm. and that what we have now is a deeply imperfect marketplace uh, in large part because of the sort of collusion between insurance companies well, sure. and government. And that part of the... I would want a solution that is more like Singapore and Switzerland right. because I want a solution that is more uh, that is more consumer-driven. Okay. Rather than ask you to explain Singapore and Switzerland, which yeah, would probably take a while. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh. It's just like the... I, the irony of libertarians <laughs> looking into Singapore for ideas. I know. That's a good like, point. I mean, there's I a whole... I know, it's, I know it's a healthcare thing. It's just like, be everything else about Singapore? Yeah. Singapore is Ever. a totalitarian nightmare. Uh, well, I hear it's a totalitarian paradise, actually. But... Right. <laughs> it's it's like, uh, <laughs> But <laughs> the thing... <laughs> For somebody who just paid... Very high standard of living. Well, if you just paid for a parking space, I am scared of that place. Exactly. It's <laughs> it's the equivalent of... It's the equivalent of the evil Stepford planet from mm. A Wrinkle in Time. <laughs> uh, but they have swimming pools in the sky. Anyways. <laughs> well, no, I mean, if one thing I think any Canadian can tell you is even though they have universal health care and, they, and you know, they don't have to worry about bills, is for things like a lot of specialty care, especially like surgery the waits can be just insanely long just because they basically do have to ration well, it. There's just not enough. <laughs> I had a... And so, you I know, and a, money doesn't talk. I yeah, had a cousin, Unless you come down here. I had a cousin who, like, 
True story. I had a cousin who died of cancer in Belgium because they basically determined that uh, she wasn't a good enough risk for the kind of procedure that was needed. That's something that Chris and I were talking about the other day, the difference in philosophy between, but because when you have to, when you have to ration healthcare, you have to decide, okay, what, how are we, who are we going to give priority to? How do we ration it? And the way, like, for example, I'll give the example of liver transplants in this country, you get a score they have a, there's an acronym for it. It's, it's based on how sick you are and you have and the, the people with the higher scores who are more likely, who are higher on the list to get a liver are the oh, people the who are most people. likely to die soonest. Whereas in Canada, the it's way the it's, it's based on how much essential mileage they expect you to get out of the liver. So somebody who's younger, who they think is going to live longer with the new liver is higher on the list. Whereas the people who are older and sicker are, are a lower priority. So basically they've decided that the liver is a precious commodity and they want to give it to the person who will get the most use out of it. And on one level, okay, that, that, that does logically make sense when you're trying to ration a scarce resource. That's like, that's a really, it makes sense in a really dark utilitarian but that's way. What, that, that's what people mean when they talk about death panels. Because the people making the decisions are not you or your insurance company or even a hospital. It's the government. <laughs> it's a government committee that's decided this is how we're going to ration this resource. And if you don't like their system, you literally have to go somewhere else and pay. Thailand. Uh, or, or, or Seattle or whatever. But uh, or you're someplace where uh, I don't know you can't kidneys you can give away one you, you we all I, we only have like two livers right no wait no there's just one liver so yeah you can't live without your liver <laughs> pretty sure I have three or four yeah but and uh, a but yeah that's and th these are like ethical moral questions we need to we need to un these are things that people don't think about when they you know chant we want single payer right now you know. Well, I'd say that, you know, the, the part where we're not thinking about it, we mm. just, you know, jump into well, of course. one thing or another, whether it is for or against. Yeah. That's just happening on many let's sides. Just give, many sides. Let's just give uh, the United States government a, a full-on monopoly of unhealth care uh, <laughs> and take over that entire sector of our uh, economy, and nothing will go wrong. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to figure out how to get universal health care, but it's something that needs to be very carefully thought out. And things yeah. are going to go wrong, and it's going to be incredibly expensive. Okay, we're afraid, okay, we're afraid of that, and we don't like the thing we have now. So, what um, I guess I'll just to sum up. There's no simple answer to it. Let's get back to talking about Nazis or healthcare or something. or healthcare Nazis. Yes, Nazi uh, Nazis don't use. Do they use iPhones? Well, or maybe they're not people, but I they mean, do. Probably they do Is presumably it? get sick and need not healthcare. Not because they're Nazis, because they. Just because they're not technically inclined. Can a doctor refuse to treat someone because they're a Nazi? No. No. That's that'd definitely a thing. That'd, yeah. that'd be bad. Mm -hmm. A doctor cannot... Ref a, a Nazi... This has come up in you lots can, of... You, you can totally turn like, what would happen if a Nazi went to the ER and the doctor just punched him? This has come up in lots of dumb hospital TV shows. <laughs> like, it comes up all the time in those TV shows. But it's also a real thing that, like, uh, you as a doctor cannot refuse 
to uh, to treat a Nazi, mm-hmm. though Nazis have been known on occasion to refuse treatment by brown doctors. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I've heard well, of that's that. That's their problem. Not just Nazis, but racists. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, yeah, I saw that Kenya Break where he, where the, the where the racist guy finds yeah. out he gets a he has a what transfusion from Nell Carter. Well, there's a famous Grey's Anatomy episode where that happens, and a guy with a massive swastika chest tattoo. Uh, it ends up being turned into an S because of open heart surgery. Um, and he ends up... That stands for hope, by the way. It's maybe a new planet. Here it stands for ding, something else Wouldn't happens. it be just poetic justice oh. if the Nazi if the Nazi patient had to be treated by the Nazi doctor? Well, Dr. You know Me- I, like Dr. Mengele. Or... You know my Mengele <laughs> You know the Mengele story, right? Oh, yeah. It's my favorite story from this documentary. Uh, if you could have a favorite Nazi doctor story. So there's a documentary. Uh, there's a documentary that I, I have. For, oh, it's called The Last Laugh. So look it up. The Last Laugh. It's a documentary about whether or not Holocaust jokes and Nazi jokes can be funny. And it's interviews with both Jewish and non-Jewish comedians, uh, comedic actors, filmmakers of all sorts, and Holocaust survivors. And one of the ladies uh, who is sort of a focus of the documentary, uh, who is a survivor, she tells this story how she was in Auschwitz. uh, And at one point, her bunk was all summoned into a lab, basically. Mm. They were all told to strip down naked, and they're all afraid they're going to be, you know, tortured or experimented on. And, and in walks the doctor, uh, and it's Dr. Mengele and Dr. Mengele starts inspecting people and essentially pointing like you over there, you over there doing these, you know, invasive full body inspections. And Mengele gets to her and does his inspection and looks into her throat. And then he says to her, you know, if you survive this, you're going to need those tonsils out. And she doesn't take that very seriously, but she survives. And after the war, she goes to, you know, after it's all done, she goes to a doctor who's helping, you know, treat survivors. And she says to the doctor, doctor, Dr. Mengele told me that there was a problem with my tonsils. And he takes a look. He says, oh, yeah, we're going to we're definitely going to need to take those out. So, uh, yeah. Dr. Mangala was right. She needed her tonsils out. Well, 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 the last laugh, I think we may just have to give you the last laugh for that. Okay. Unless there's something you want to add, Chris. No, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just off on a rat hole. I was thinking about that Star Trek Voyager episode. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> where the doctor has to use research for essentially Cardassian Mangala. Folks, with that, before... <laughs> I'd like to personally apologize for this very rambling episode of Precious Snowflakes. Okay, <laughs> We're right at an hour. From Nazi armbands. I'll let anything happen if it happens. Well, look, if, from Nazi armbands to the libertarian alt-right pipeline mm. to healthcare, back to Dr. Mangala, we came full circle, guys. Yes. So, I am Lelius Rose. I'm Ben Phelps. We are your... Precious snowflakes. snowflakes.